Welcome back to the program. There once was a time when technology was sold to business to help create new, softer consumer products. Today, we know there's a mass market for technology itself, that it's sold directly to consumers, in fact, to all of us. Given that new, particularly disruptive technology usually begins with a blank page, an audience of zero for products that did not exist yesterday, how has the marketing of these products changed and what's the nexus with our habits and adoption of technology itself? Jeffrey Moore's book, Crossing the Chasm, has long been the Bible for entrepreneurs bringing products to larger and larger markets. But what's different today? Moore is just out with a new and updated volume of Crossing the Chasm. Jeffrey Moore is an organizational theorist, a management consultant, and the author of six previous books. It is my pleasure to welcome him to the program today to talk about Crossing the Chasm, Marketing and Selling Disruptive Products to Mainstream Consumers. Jeffrey Moore, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you here. One of the things that is so interesting about thinking about technology being mass marketed to consumers today is this idea that so many products, particularly disruptive products, start off with an audience of zero, that people often don't know what it is they want until the product is put in front of them. Talk about that first. Well, it, it led to a, a model which has been around for some time called the technology adoption life cycle, in which different types of customers sort of get involved with the product at different phases of its market adoption. So it starts with people we ended up calling technology enthusiasts who just hear about the, the latest and greatest thing through the grapevine and find some way to, to play it, or maybe somebody at Google shares it with with you or somebody at Facebook or whatever. And then the next group is we call them the visionaries. They're actually senior business executives who buy into the technology as a way to change the business model or operating model of their industry. They're not buying the tech for the tech's sake. They're buying it for the sort of strategic impact it could have someplace else. Think about what Jeff Bezos did with the internet to retail, that kind of thing. And those two constituencies together often go very early and the press follows it. We all get excited about it. But really, the majority of the market is still looking at this a little bit from the side, thinking I'm not quite sure it's ready for prime time. So that third group of the five, we call the pragmatists. And the pragmatists say, well, I want to adopt this when it's ready for prime time but not before. And so they're always checking in with each other. Where are you? Are you going to do this yet? Am I going to do this yet? It's a little bit like a junior high dance problem, right? Getting people together. And then the last two, the conservatives and the laggards, they end up doing whatever the pragmatists do, but just later on, because the conservatives are very concerned about the, the law of unintended consequences. So they're saying there's always more downside here than people acknowledge. And then, frankly, the laggards are saying this whole thing's an instrument of the devil, and we just shouldn't do it. And, and so the, the whole point of cross the chasm was between the visionaries and the pragmatists, that second and third group, there's a pause in the market because the visionaries are predisposed to go early and the pragmatists are predisposed to wait and see. And crossing the chasm was about how could marketers overcome that, that lull in the market. And how is this impacted by what's come to be called the innovator's dilemma, the idea that by the time there is mass adoption, by the time those that hold back embrace something, it's almost too late. Something new is coming along. 
Well, this is a problem with any established franchise because an established franchise, the more it matures, frankly, the more profitable and efficient it becomes. And it becomes, if if you're not careful, you become very addicted to a set of revenue and profit margins in a business model that's very, very favorable to you, whether you're Cisco or Microsoft or IBM or Intel or whomever. The problem is the next generation of challengers have a different approach. It's one which at the beginning looks really, frankly, just not even up to the task. Of, of competing with you at all. But over time, as it develops its own life cycle, it increasingly encroaches on your franchise. And by the time the franchise is really you know, threatened enough to respond, it's often too late. To what extent, then, is first mover advantage critical within this context? Well, a first mover advantage is, is, is huge from the point of view of as you're, if you're leading the new charge, the question is, are you the first guy out, second guy, third guy out? It turns out it doesn't mean you're the first person to invent it. It's actually, are you the first person to cross the chasm and get into mass adoption? Because once adopt people, the pragmatists start adopting anything, their preference is to adopt whatever it was that they just saw the guy next to them adopt. So if, they went, if, if you went with Google instead of Yahoo Search or if you went with Facebook instead of MySpace, if you went with Facebook, I want to go with Facebook. If you went with LinkedIn, I want to go with LinkedIn. And so that first mover advantage kind of has that sort of reinforcing uh, effect. Is that true today, though? I mean, it used to be the old adage was that you never could get fired for doing business with IBM. Today, that's a different story. (laughs) I think it's fair to say, though, at any given time, it's hard to get fired for going with the, the then current market leader. Because, because basically what a pragmatist does is he says, look, I may not be competent to make every one of these buying decisions, but if I see most people making the same decision, I should be reasonably safe going along with the herd. And it, it, it's kind of a herd strategy, and it's not a stupid strategy at all. It's just a strategy which says, look, I've got other things to worry about in life, too. I've got to kind of, at some point, trust in the wisdom uh, of the crowd, and I'm going to go with what other people go with. Talk about all of this from the point of view of monetizing, because oftentimes there's this gap between the introduction of a product, even the successful adoption of a product, and that product being able to be monetized. Well, this probably is the single biggest revolution in in business and tech in my career, because prior to this last decade, this century, basically everything that you got in tech, you paid for. And then what happened with the, with, by the time we proliferated all the mobile stuff and the, and the internet and, and we had this very very powerful networking that was very inexpensive, we, we, the whole the whole world of software became a media property. Or at least that was one way you could look at it. And with media, if you think about media, whether it's your radio program or somebody's newspaper or magazine, you can sell subscriptions or you can give it away and just pay for it from advertising. And the give it away, pay it for it from advertising was massively disruptive because Google gives away what Microsoft sells. And so all of a sudden, you go, holy smoke, how do you deal with that? And the last 10 years, we've watched this entire landscape. We've watched media go through it. We're watching retail go through it. We've seen software go through it. where They give, they give something away. Basically, they don't monetize it at all. But eventually, at the back end, there's a monetization solution. But by the time, by the time that comes clear to everybody, you're, you, you, again, the innovator's dilemma, most of the traditional models were caught very badly off guard. There is at best a a kind of plan to monetize. It doesn't always mean that that plan works out. There may be a business plan initially that says, at this point, we're going to be able to monetize this. But by the time that point is reached, a lot of other things have changed in the market. 
Well, this is true, and, when, and, and so we have a model that we added to Crossing the Chasm called the Four Gears, specifically for this kind of problem. And the Four Gears are: Can you acquire the traffic on the internet? Can you engage them in a way that they get go deep with you and stay with you? Are you sticky? Can you monetize them, and then can you enlist them to help you uh, go viral and, and get new customers? And when you look at these new models, basically they took the monetization gear and they just set it to the side. And they said, let's just do acquire, engage, and list. Acquire, engage, and list. And they were just building. And look at WhatsApp. It got half a billion users around the planet. It's still not clear how to monetize WhatsApp. But I think Facebook and Zuckerberg in particular looked at that and said, a half a billion people can't be all bad, right? So I, and I Facebook, will figure out a way to monetize it, whereas the guys running WhatsApp said, well, we're not going to figure out how to monetize it. We'll let the, the company that acquires us figure that out. What gets seductive in this equation is that it is so easy to go from zero to half a billion users with very little increase in marginal cost. Well, that is, that's the huge, that's the thing that makes it, so from a business point of view, so disruptive because the, the barrier to entry is, as you just point out, it's virtually zero. Now, do you have what it takes to go viral? I mean, let's not, you know, many, many, many people have entered this race and very, very few have won. So there is a lot of natural selection and Darwinian selection going on, but it's not going on at the level of monetization, which is the great shock to anybody who's ever been to business school, because the whole premise of business school is the business is about monetization. And, and for those that invest, for those that invest time, resources, and money, Talk a little bit about what makes it not a crapshoot, that it's still a functional business. Well, you know, this is a fair... First of all, it's, if you'll notice the markets recently, we do oscillate <laughs> between crapshoot business, crapshoot business, crapshoot business, because we get ahead of ourselves and we're not quite sure where it's going. I would still argue, by the way, you know, we're all, we're all caught up right now in this new business model. Traditional tech is actually having a renaissance. Traditional business-to-business technology, which is the old crossing the chasm model, and, and you, you, know, you do monetize as you go along, and you have to build an ecosystem, and it takes time, and you, you don't get a half a billion customers. You, you're going to get 100 customers, and then maybe you're going to go get 200 customers. That whole business is, is having a renaissance, and I would encourage – it's a much more stable business to invest in. It doesn't have quite the hypervaluation, but it doesn't have the hyper-devaluation either. But having said that, if we go back to these more volatile businesses the, the, the bet is the bet is made here I mean it's very interesting people are betting that the monetization will emerge well no investor I mean in, in my father's day you would have been laughed out of the room and and I think in the dot-com bubble we had our first our first you know a foray into this idea that the monetization model will emerge and it, it did for some and for many it blew up I think that that continued volatility is still in the market for a while to come Give some examples of the companies that are using, within the context of technology, this more traditional approach that you're talking about. Well, okay. So if you look at, if you look at for example, the, the companies that are going out and, and having business customers. So, so there's the, the Jives and the Yammers and the Lithiums, and they're trying to say, look, can't we take the social, the social part of business and bring it to the enterprise? You look at the boxes and the, and, and the, and the drop boxes and the people with content saying, look, can't we take the Google Drive idea and make that useful for business? This whole theme is called the consumerization of enterprise IT. And what it means is, why can't we take all the mobile and, and, and wireless and broadband that we use in our homes, why can't we bring that infrastructure 
to bear on our business tasks as well. It turns out that's a tough problem because of security and authentication, this heart bleed bug, uh, bug that's all got us scared this week. There's a lot of reasons to be concerned about it, but the, but the productivity gain is massive. And so what you're seeing is a bunch of businesses coming into that area, you know, companies like Okta with uh, single sign-on and AirWatch and Mobile Iron and to do mobile device management. It's a bunch of very arcane kind of technical stuff, but it's the technical stuff you got to get done if those of us who are on iPhones or Androids or, 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 or Windows tablets or whatever it is want to use the, the enterprise IT the way we use the rest of the IT that, in our lives. Talk about the productivity and the tremendous productivity gains we've seen as a result of this and the larger consequences of that to future business cycles. Well, this is really, this is a huge cultural change. You know, in my father's era, the, the, the image of business was kind of a command and control hierarchy based on the, the military or the Roman Catholic Church or the, any sort of bureaucratic uh, hierarchy. In my era, because of the PC and the whole idea about individual empowerment and MBOs and all this stuff, we moved it, we shifted the business from command and control to more of an individual empowerment play. And, and that was, that was my era. If you look at the current era, it's much more of a collaborative business model. It's not so much empower the individual as empower a group. And if you look at the software and the systems that are coming out now, the productivity gains they're getting are, are come from starting with a collaborative approach from the beginning, as opposed to starting with an individualistic approach and trying to negotiate your way to collaboration. These, uh, this generation we, we, you know, was raised collaborating in school. When I went to school, collaboration was called cheating. You know, you were actually <laughs> expelled. But the current generation, when they go to school, it's how they actually do schoolwork. And it's leading to a very different way to get things done. Some things I think it's much, much better at. I think probably other things it's not as good at. It's interesting that you talk about it going on in schools. To what extent is it going on in business schools, and how have they been able to adapt? I have to say that they're probably the least adaptive <laughs> instrument. Right. You know, we'll go back to the innovator dilemma. Your Harvard, your 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 MIT, your Stanford, your all these guys. Your business school has been the iconic definition of how to get things done. And, and the truth is today, the D school at Stanford is much more interesting than the B school. And there's a disruption underway. And, 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 and you know, Clay Christensen's, you know, sort of criticizing, he's at Harvard, right? He's criticizing the Harvard curriculum, saying, we're going to be disrupted. It's not that everybody's going to go to a massively online course, one of these things they call MOOCs. But it is, at the margin, a different way of, of learning. Talk a little bit about how this is impacting the bottom line of these companies and how it impacts really business in general. Well, it's interesting because I think in the short term, disruptive change, it, it affects the top line, but it actually affects the bottom line in a negative way. There's something that people like to call a J-curve, which is, you know, your, your earnings and your, and your profitability go down before they go back up. Because when you go through an adoption switch out, you lose a lot of productivity during the switch out. First of all, you're getting rid of an older system, which may not be the most modern, but you were very good at using it. You're moving to a modern system, but frankly, you don't know how to use it. And frankly, the system isn't quite gun yet either. So there's a significant impact. I can remember when we brought the PC into the workplace, there were articles at the beginning of the 90s saying, you know, we've spent all this money on PCs. I don't think it's affected our bottom line one whit. But then what happened is we hooked the PC up to the, to the mainframes and we had this thing called client server computing and the internet came along and it 
it changed the productivity of the planet. I mean, we, we went into a huge global outsourcing model that completely changed business productivity. But it usually takes a decade beyond. The decade of adoption is not the decade it pays off. I think it's the decade after that decade that it really pays off. How has all of this circled back and impacted traditional consumer marketing? What have those marketers learned from these areas that we've been talking about? Oh, I, I have to tell you, if you want to think of a job that is that is so changing right now, it's really, you know, we talk about in education about STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, and how we want people to do that. But the truth is, marketing traditionally was from the humanities. But in the new digital world, STEM has to meet marketing. I, I just saw at Stanford, they're putting together a CS plus X major, which is computer science plus humanities, or computer science plus music, or computer science plus literature. And, the, and when you look at the, at the marketing, in the digital world, you still need to engage with human beings. So that's still the, 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 the domain of narratives and storytelling and, and, and imagery and brand, brand uh, uh, aspirations and all that kind of good stuff. But now that it's happening digitally, there are all these digital logs that create this huge thing of they call big data, which you can apply analytics and machine learning and artificial intelligence to. And all of a sudden, marketing has become a math problem. And so you're watching the VPs of marketing and consumer goods going, holy smoke, I knew I was supposed to hire English majors, and I knew I had to get some art majors in for the graphics. I never knew I had to have math majors. And the deal is, well, yeah, in the new digital world, if you cannot use big data, you can't see what's going on. Is this counter to what we thought would happen with the long tail, that we thought all of this would result in simply niche marketing, and in fact, the opposite is true to some extent? Well, you know, I think that was a naive thing. The, the, the reason why I think niche marketing, it's not that niche marketing is impossible. In fact, you could say, look, you can enable, quote, one-to-one marketing. The interesting thing is people don't want one-to-one marketing. People want what their neighbors have. People, people actually make marketing commitments as a communal social act. That's what social networking is showing us. And so as a result, People want to aggregate around popular brands. Now, every generation wants to make sure that the brand that they like is not the one their parents like, which is why young people now don't want to be on Facebook, precisely because their parents are on Facebook. But it's still a social decision. You know, we're, we're, we're being nonconformist in order to be conformist with ourselves. And, and you know, you, your, your generation and my generation went through that, and so is this generation. What that results in, again, though, is this constantly changing landscape that one has to adapt to 24-7. Yeah, this, you know, Darwin is still alive and well. <laughs> and, and if you watch, it's so interesting, because if you look, at, I, I read a fair amount of, in, in the Darwinism stuff, because I'm, I'm working to try to always apply it to business situations and, and markets. And Darwin actually had two principles of selection. One was natural selection, which is the one everybody remembers, which is survival of the fittest. And the other is sexual selection, which is it doesn't do any good to survive unless you can get a mate and reproduce. So it turns out in the, in the, in the world of ideas and themes, there's a kind of an analogy going on. Natural selection is, is the idea worthwhile? Is it worth repeating? Should we, should we carry it forward? Sexual selection is, is it appealing? Is it viral? Is it getting lots of shares and likes on Facebooks? And so you're watching this sort of Darwinian experiment in the digital world where you see certain ideas or certain r- movie stars or, or songs or, you know, rise to the top of a hit parade largely because of you know, some combination of natural selection and sexual selection. Of course, there's a lot of luck involved in it as well. 
Well, there, there is, and you know, people, <laughs> you know, history is simply, the, you, when you, once you write the history, of course, it always looks like it was brilliant business planning and courageous decisions made by far-sighted folks. And, and, and you know, you have to give folks some credit for that. But, but anybody who's been through this thing knows there, there's a huge element of luck in it. I think it's important if you put yourself in service to a worthy cause, um, that helps because, at the margin, the world tends to want to help people pursue a worthy cause, and so you you actually I think would have better luck if you and you'd call it luck, but I think it's more than that. If you put yourself in service to something other people believe in and care care about, there's a guy named Simon Sinek who says, you know, the goal of an innovator is not to sell people what they need; it's to it's to sell it. It's not to find customers who need what they have; it's to find customers who believe what they believe. And Steve Jobs was probably the ultimate the ultimate in that context of creating a belief system and and the Apple faithful obviously believed in that belief system. Jeffrey Moore, the book is Crossing the Chasm, Marketing and Selling Products to Mainstream Customers. It's just out from Harper Business. Jeffrey, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, it's a pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me on the, on the show, Jeff. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.